this morning I'm going to start by telling you a story, and I want you to know from the beginning that this story is true, okay? It's uh, one of those things that you might sit there and go, did that really happen? I don't want you to get caught up into that really happened, because it did happen, and it uh, hopefully illustrates uh, what Paul in Romans 9 is trying to get at in a way and open us to it. Uh, the story comes from my first year of seminary. Uh, I was studying at a seminary in Atlanta. That's where um, I went and where Beth wound up going uh, as well. But at, at this point when I started, we had been married for eight months, but uh, Beth's visa had still not come through. And so even though we had been married for uh, eight months, when I started seminary, I started in one continent and she was in Wales uh, waiting for her visa to come through, which is not a fun way of living, and it wasn't a fun way of trying to adjust to seminary and, uh, and everything else. And so halfway through the first semester, uh, I asked the seminary for a favor, okay? Uh, and what I asked them for a favor about was to say that uh, I was hoping to go and find some way of being on like the same continent as her. That was like, that was my goal, and I needed school to pave a way to do that. Uh, and so the way our school worked is we had a fall semester and a spring semester, but then they had what they call a January term, which was like a three-week intensive every January. And I said, is there a way that I could go and do something in the UK uh, to be around her? And they basically said, well, we don't even know how that would work. And, and like academically, how are you thinking about that? And I was like, I'm not thinking about this academically. I'd like to be on the same continent as my wife, and I need your help to make that happen. And essentially, they in the end took pity on me, which I was totally fine with. They're like, we don't know how this works academically, but you can do it. And I'm like, great, uh, that, that's what I'm looking for. And what we worked out was the idea of doing an independent study. And what that meant was, as they said, do you know of like any church in Wales or like a pastor there that you could just like do a little reading or learning with, and then like at the end of the three weeks, write a paper for us and that would be it. Um, and I'm like, yes, I know a guy. now. The guy I knew I had met one time before, and he was an American pastor who was working in Cardiff in Wales. And so I was like, yeah, I know this guy, and I think he's like been to seminary, which means he's all-knowing and all-wise, and that that should make it like totally good. And so I contacted him and said, could I come do an internship? He's like, what's your passion for the internship? And I was like, it is being around my wife, uh, and then I hope to learn something while I'm there. And so we worked out together a reading list, and the reading list started with an amazing book that some of you may have read. Uh, if not, I recommend it. It's by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. And so this was the first book. So my assignment was to go over and I had Christmas and New Year with Beth and her family, and it was great to be together. And then starting January, I began my three-week independent study, and I had to come in having read the first part of The Cost of Discipleship. That was my assignment. So I read it, and I knew things were going to be different when the pastor, whose name is Wade, uh, invited me, and he said, you know, first time I want to meet with you, let's do it at my home, because I don't have an office or kind of a place to go, so we're going to do it at my house. I was like, okay, that fine, that sounds good. So I showed up when I was supposed to uh, at his home, and it's him and his wife and their four children under the age of 10 and their two dogs, all in a house that's like the size of this speaker right here. Like just all in there, crammed in there together, and this is where we're going to have an intense conversation about the cost of discipleship. And it is just like chaos in there. There are dogs running everywhere, and there are kids running everywhere, and they're fighting. And Wade had this like amazing ability to do what I didn't understand, but I now get as a parent, in that he could both hold a conversation and discipline his children at the same time. So he would be saying stuff to me like, what do you think Bonhoeffer is trying to get at? Would you stop bouncing that ball in chapter? two when he makes this point. And you're going, 
I mean, it was just, it was just crazy. As we were sort of wrapping things up, all of a sudden, uh, his oldest son, oldest of the four children, comes walking into the room, and he's crying. Now, this had happened before, because someone had punched somebody, or someone had done something wrong, and so we kind of stopped. But this little boy comes up, and he said, uh, Dad, Timmy died. And his dad was like, oh, I'm sorry about that. And I'm sitting there, I was like, who is, who is Timmy? Like, is this like, do we have a crisis? I mean, well, it turns out Timmy was this little boy's hamster. His hamster had died. Gone in and, and, and found that, that his pet hamster had died. And this little boy sitting there, and Wade sort of just saying, I'm sorry. He goes, Dad, is Timmy in heaven? And Wade looked at him and said, did Timmy profess with his lips and believe in his heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? And I'm like waiting for the next part. And, and the little boy goes, no. And Wade said, nothing. Nothing that does not profess with his lips and believe in his heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior will enter into the presence of God. And I said, to be fair, he is a hamster, right? Like, there's got to be some sort of provision in the scriptures for this, right? Like, are you kidding me? And the kid starts crying, and Wade turned and looked at me and goes, nothing that does not profess with his lips and believe his heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior will enter into the kingdom of God. Discussion ended. Little boy walked out of the room. And afterwards, I, when we finished our discussion, I decided to turn, and I was like, hey, before I go, can I go use the restroom or something? And I walked out, and I found his son, and I was like, hey, man, Timmy's in heaven. Like, just so you know, <laughs> Timmy sounded like a really special hamster to me, and I think Timmy is with Jesus right now. Like, it was just kind of one of those unbelievable moments, and it turned out that uh, the internship didn't bear a lot of great fruit. It turns out over the, over the three weeks I was there, I read a couple of good books and I got to be on the same continent with my wife and all of that was good. But it was just this kind of uh, eye-opening experience to take something like in that moment and turn it into something that formulaic and that literal, right? And that's what I want to talk about today and I think that's what Paul is inviting us to think about in Romans 9, because this isn't just something that Wade did several years ago in this case. This is a one example, maybe an extreme example, of something every one of us does in our lives. And that is that we take the grand nature of God and the mysteries of life and faith, and we, to find comfort, reduce them to formulas that we hold on to, that we think give us the, all the answers we need. We don't like the idea of mystery. We don't like the idea of questions that are beyond us. We need to find systems and equations and uh, answers to so every other thing. And, and if we can't, we're just going to grasp at whatever we need. And what I want us to talk about today is that whether Paul is saying that the presence of mystery is something that you need to work through in your faith, or whether actually the presence of mystery can be acknowledged by people of the most mature faith and take us into a different way of being, okay? The scripture that we're going through, and we're going through a different chapter of Romans each week. Uh, this week, we're in the ninth week. It's Romans chapter nine. I invite you to read it this week as we go. We're gonna take these five verses, um, and this is what it says. Paul writes, you will say to me then, why then does he still find fault? 
For who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would be with us, teach us, mold us, guide us as your people. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, so in our, in our journey through Romans, uh, chapter 9, which we're in today, starts a section of three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And this is where Paul is going to be addressing one very important and at that time very relevant question of faith. It might not have the same feel necessarily of relevance to us here in Austin 2,000 years later, but by looking at it, we really can learn a lot about God and learn a lot about ourselves. And the question that Paul is getting into in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is about the question of how does salvation work for the Jews? How does salvation work for the people of Israel? And this is why this question was so important at the time. Because you had a church like in Rome where you have both Jewish and Gentile, that means non-Jewish people who are coming together and coming to faith. And, And it led people to question things that for thousands of years hadn't been questioned. And that is, what is God's covenant relationship like with the people of Israel, with the Hebrew people? Now, we have to understand that that relationship had been determined for thousands of years, and it was based on a covenant system. And what that system was, starting with Abraham that we see in Genesis, that God says that I will be your God and you will be my people. And God, through the ages, shows the people of Israel over and over again that no matter how much they mess up or no matter how much they rebel or no matter how far they run from God, that their relationship with God is never broken because God is always faithful. God never walks away from them and says, I am done with you. I just can't take this anymore. I'm going to go find somebody else who will be better and cleaner and more holy than you. God remains faithful. That's what a covenant means. God remains faithful even when they are not. And that is a huge foundation of what you and I believe, right? We just sing about that. That we live as confessional people because we are broken. This week, every single one of us has failed to do what we know is right, and we continue to do what we know is wrong. And it is not a question of knowledge or discipline or guilting our way through this. And when we understand that, we understand that just like God uh, has been at work through with his people for all times, that we say that when we come in here and sing, I don't deserve it, I haven't earned it, but still you pursue me. This idea that God does not look at any of us in his love and says, I'm done with you. I've heard you say you're done, you're going to change. I've heard you say you're going to be different. I've heard this over and over again. I can't take it anymore. Go figure it out and then come back to me when you're clean. What God's, the gospel is, the good news, is as we heard last week in Romans 8, Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That that covenant relationship is now available for all of us through Jesus. This faithfulness of God, this love of God. But there was this question that was there still, which is like, well, how does this work? Does like the old covenant that God had with Hebrews, is that still uh, at work or does it change now? And so this is what Paul's gonna spend three chapters in. How does it work, salvation, 
for the people of Israel. And as we'll see, because he spends three chapters in this, the brother has a lot of opinions about it, okay? He has a lot that he's going to write about it. Paul is very smart. He grew up Jewish. He's a Pharisee. It's not that he's not going to have opinions and convictions about this. He has very definite things that we will go into. But what I love about this chapter and what I love about the section of Scripture that we've read is that Paul starts all of this conversation in chapter 9 by essentially saying, I want to state from the beginning, God is God and I'm not God. That I am the object and God is the one who molds. I am the piece of clay and God is the potter who is doing the fashioning in this. There is a kind of humility that is built into this from the beginning where Paul is essentially from the start saying, I have opinions on this that are informed and that I'm passionate about and they're strong, but I acknowledge from the beginning that it is only God who sees things like salvation completely. These are things that I cannot fully understand. They may not work like a physics equation, and therefore I am going to tell you what I believe, but God is God and I am not. And that can feel different. When you think about this from like a school of leadership, that's a different kind of leadership than we often see. Most of us in our, in our society are drawn to leaders who stand for things. They stand, they have convictions, they never waver, they never change, they do not uh, alter the ways that they look at things. Uh, they are public with this, they can take the criticism, it doesn't bother with them, they just charge forward. And Paul is exhibiting a different way of leading. And think about how different our dialogue as human beings might be if we took that same position to say, I have got passionate feelings on things, but I'm a state from the beginning. God might see this differently. I believe that. I believe that's true for all of us. I believe that's true for me. I've got opinions on things. I have views on things. I believe in things. Uh, and, and I'm passionate about things. But I believe that as a broken person that there is a, a piece of me that when I go and face to face with God, when I am in heaven, that the Lord is going to look at me and go, Thomas, you really missed that one. And I'm going to be like, no, 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 no. That one I felt really secure about. I really did feel like I, it's these that I felt like, like I wasn't quite sure what to think and everything else. But this one was like really obvious, right and wrong. And God's going to be like, yep, and you really, really missed it. That's what Paul's saying here. What he's saying is, is that that is not a position of weakness. But as people of faith, it's one sometimes the most honest we can be. Think about how different our dialogue would be in our nation if this is the way people talked in the midst of our dialogue right now, is to say, I've got conviction, I've got passion, I'm going to articulate that, I'm going to debate you on this, but I, from the beginning, want you to know that I could be totally wrong. Not just as lip service, not as like false humility, really starting from a position of acknowledging God is God, and, and, and as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, I see in a mirror dimly. I think I see things, but I have to acknowledge from the, from the beginning that is dim. Think about how conflict in our lives might work differently. Think about in our marriages, how it would be different. If you're like, this is what I think you should be doing, but I acknowledge there's a tiny chance I could be wrong. <laughs> think about that, what it means in our families, or in our friendships. If we state from the beginning, God is God, and I am not. And here's what I think, but I also have to be honest about the difference in what I think and what I know. This is, friends, an important journey that we take because there are questions in life 
that when people come and talk to me as a pastor, that one of the first places you start in the really hard questions of life is often, I can't give you the definite answer. I can tell you certain things that we believe God's doing in this, but there are certain things that we just start from the beginning going, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have full understanding as to why this is. And what Paul's exhibiting is that that's not a sign of a lack of faith. That there's a difference in claiming what we think and what we know. And that what he's saying here is that we know enough about God to have definite things that we can say. He's saying that when God says, who are you, a human being, to argue with God? This is like how we read in the book of Job in the Old Testament when, when God says to Job, who are you, a mortal, to argue with me? And Paul is saying that here, but he's not saying it in a way that's like confrontational, like you are insignificant and small, don't question anything. It could sound like that. But what he uses in the image here is one of a potter. And he says that who is the object of clay to say to the potter, this is what I'm going to be. This is what life is supposed to look like. And he's saying, and yet at the same time, the image he gives us of God is one of a potter. And, and some of you probably do um, work with clay and do pottery. I know people who do. And the, uh, the heart of a potter is one who loves and loves shaping and loves forming and loves being a part of bringing beauty into this world. One who loves taking a, a, just a kind of formless hunk of clay and turning it into something that has purpose and has meaning in this world. They are creating out of a sense of passion and a sense of love. And so when, when, when Paul is saying here is that, listen, I am not God, but I know the one who knows everything. He's not saying God's this authoritarian. He's like, we know things about that God. That God is kind. That God is loving. That God is forgiving. That God is full of grace. We know so much about that God. And so it's not a statement of weakness or insecurity to say, so there's things I don't know but God knows. It's actually a statement of great faith that can give us peace. If I had to list the people that have had a great significance on my life and in my journey, one of certainly the most kind of on my Mount Rushmore would be my grandfather, my mother's father. I've mentioned him before. He was just one of those wonderful, wonderful human beings in my life. He was one of those grandfathers that he attended from when I was really young, like every band concert and every choir concert and every sporting event. You know, he'd be the guy when I was sitting on the end of the bench and didn't play for like eight games in a row, he was still showing up. He's like, man, you sat on the bench with passion. Like you were, I'm proud of you, you're doing great. He just, he was just that person, that presence in my life. And then when my parents divorced when I was 18, he was uh, just a rock for me and for my brothers, for our family. he, he was just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. And, um, but as I told you, I, have, I didn't grow up with faith as a, as a big part of my life. And as I look back on it, it's really my grandfather and his story that formed and shaped that as well. And that was because my grandfather owned a construction company in Atlanta. Uh, and it he did very, very well. Atlanta was a good city to be in construction in uh, when he was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s. And it, the city grew very quickly. And, uh, and in the 1960s, my grandfather was involved with leadership for the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. And this is kind of a business association in Atlanta seeking to work and attract business to the city. And he and some others took a very public stance in favor during the 1960s of full racial integration in the city believe that businesses, believe that restaurants, believe that the fire department, believe that the police department, and publicly advocated and worked for full integration. It was a very public stance because of his position, and one day he got a call from the pastor of the church where he attended. Pastor invited him to come in. My grandfather was on the board of deacons at the time. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was raising his children there. 
And they asked him to come in and meet with pastor. I didn't tell him why. And my grandfather showed up in this pastor's office, and the pastor was there, and the head of the diaconate was there. And on the desk in front of him was a newspaper. The pastor, they did some pleasantries and then said, you know, I want to read you something that I read in the paper. And it was a quote from my grandfather calling for racial integration. And the pastor said, did you say that? And my grandfather said, yes, I said that. And the pastor said, I need you to know it's causing a lot of problems around here. And we're removing you from any positions of leadership in this church. We're removing you from the board of deacons. You cannot teach Sunday school here anymore. This is not the stance of this church, and this is not what we believe. And we'd really love it if you never came back here. But we can't control whether you walk in the doors. We can control that you will no longer ever hold any position of leadership here again. My grandfather's response was, thank you very much. You won't see me again. Don't worry about it. That's why I grew up outside of all of this. After college, when I came to faith as a Christian, my grandfather was still my grandfather. When I started seminary, my grandfather was still my grandfather. It was not his faith. It is not what he believed. But he was my biggest supporter. I remember the first sermon that I ever preached. He was there 30 minutes early, coat and tie, sitting on the front row. And it was one of those traditional services. I was supposed to walk up the middle. That's what pastors do at the end because we're you know, supposed to walk out and greet people and stuff like that. And, and he stopped me on the way and he gave me a hug. Like, as I was going. And he, he just, that was who he was, right? And he, was, he loved Beth, and he loved her journey through seminary. But it was not what he believed. The last year or so of his life, he got ill with a disease called vasculitis, which is a kind of a blood condition. And as he was getting sicker, it became more and more of a burden for me about what he believed and what that meant as he neared the end of his life. Because, see, friends, I believe the gospel, I believe that it is the hope of people. The unique message of Jesus Christ is the hope for people both in this world and the world to come. When we talked last week about the nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, my heart soars when I hear that and my desire is for the entire world to know that unique message. And I wanted my grandfather to know that message, to know that love, for that to be a part of his life. And so one day, it turned out about a month before he died, Beth and I went and sat down with him and my grandmother, and I just said, I've got this burden, and you are dying, and I want to know what you believe, and I want to talk to you about faith, and I want to talk to you about Jesus. And he cut me off and said, I do not want to talk about it. The church turned its back on me. I'm done. I'm good. He said, okay. had a wonderful last month of his life. I got to live with him and my grandmother the last five days of his life. Got to be there with him when he passed away. I love my grandfather. Love him. His picture is framed in my office today. But afterwards, I didn't know what happened. I wanted to know what happened to him. Because he wasn't one of those people that's like, no, 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 this is what I believe in my heart. I just don't like public religion. He would look at you and go, I do not agree with you on this. I am done with it. So what does that mean? What happens to him when he dies? Do you know those questions? I mean, I'm talking about like burdened by this. 
those things that you sit with, those questions where you're wrestling with it. And I would take like lots of time in my head to go, yeah, but he was driven away. He was driven away by things, but I believe Jesus was 100% with him on. I think he was being faithful to that. I can totally make that logic in my head. So obviously God would have answered in this way. Obviously this is how it worked, right? This is how it had to work, right? And it was that insecurity that you have when things make sense that you're looking at everyone going, right? Like that makes sense, right? Don't you agree with that? And people go, yeah, that's right. And I'm like, yeah, 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 that makes sense. That's what I I feel good about that until like two hours later when you're like, no, right? Like, let me explain it again because it's got to be right, right? Like, this is how God works because it totally makes sense. And, and, and it, I had no peace with it. I was, it was a burden for me. I want to know the answer as to how this works. And finally, one day I was talking to a friend of mine who's a pastor in Atlanta named John Hambrick. And I asked John, and I was saying to him the same thing. He's like, how are you doing after your grandfather died? And I said, well, this is what it means, and this is what I think. And, 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 you know, he's driven away by the church, and all this stuff happened. So I think he's with Jesus, and all this is good, and I believe he's in heaven. And that makes sense, right? I mean, like, does that make sense to you? He goes, makes sense to me. I'm like, good. Well, then it makes sense to me. He goes, the only thing is, Thomas, I love you enough that you don't seem to be at peace with that answer. And he said, perhaps you're looking at this the wrong way. Maybe the answer is to admit you don't know. And that the question you need to ask yourself is, not whether your grandfather is in a certain place so that you have it figured out and done. He said, if you need to make up a story to make yourself feel better, you can do that. It logically does make sense to me. The question to ask yourself is, do you trust the God that he encountered? when he breathed his last breath. Now I can tell you what I think that means. But what I know is that I trust the hands of the potter. That I know the character of the God who loves me, who has encountered me, who forgives me, who meets me in grace. That my grandfather, that each of you, that I, we are hunks of clay. Not that we are meaningless, but that we are being shaped and formed by the hands of the potter. And there is a difference in what we think and what we know. And what I know is that in these hard questions of life, you can trust. You can trust the hands of the potter. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would be with us and in our questions, in our doubts, in our fears, in our insecurities, may we, like Paul, find great comfort not in rushing to answers that give us just temporary feelings of peace because they're just our opinions of what we think, but give us the peace that comes from knowing you and trusting you with both the questions and the answers. May our faith be strong enough to believe even when we don't have full understanding. We pray for this and trust in this. In Christ's name, amen.